From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, August 19th. According to some old-timers, Moab used to have a pretty big cat problem. We're talking street cats, community cats, the ones that might have been abandoned or just strayed away from home, left to fend for themselves outside. Unsterilized, cats can end up breeding at an alarming rate. The ASPCA estimates one unsterilized female cat can breed hundreds more over their lifetime. So about 20 years ago now, the town got serious about a trap-neuter return program. The local Humane Society reports that community cat populations have since declined and stabilized. They estimate they've sterilized over 4,000 of them. They say Moab's cat colonies have decreased from about 16 locations to just 10 now. The nonprofit puts gravity feeders of dry food in these areas to help monitor them. But there's this one guy, a local, Travis Garcia. He really feels for these cats. At the beginning of the pandemic, he started getting to know the ones living on the open land behind the hospital, the area that kind of bleeds into and around the Walnut Lane trailer park. And pretty quickly, he was watching out for them. As he says, he can't stand suffering, which some of them have. There's disease, infection, all kinds of stuff abandoned animals might encounter. Travis has been in tune with these cats now for some time. He's known to those who know as Cat Daddy. I don't know. Someone gave that to me and it just kind of stuck. But I like to get a cat rescue going. I think that's probably what I call it. Cat Daddy Cat Rescue. <laughs> Usually I drive, hold it, and the movement about like that. The movement of the car, it's about like that. Oop. Hey, when I first got the bill, I was driving down that last roll, and I, I was doing it, just holding it, and it was dinging and dinging. And they didn't know how to, you know, like, what's that? About a week and a half, two weeks, they figured out it was me. And I'd drive down there, and then I'd stop, and I'd look back. There must have been 20 cats walking up the road. You know, it's it's quite a sight to see that. It's funny. <laughs> they know that bell real well. Hey guys! Hey guys! Right over there, that's my senior group. Those two kittens and about six, seven uh, adults. They're all lined up underneath the car there. I got the bowls running lengthwise by the floorboard there and <laughs> they're eating like crazy. There's a few like, there's a cat that looked just like him. Uh-huh. I mean, again, there's a bunch of them look like him, but the one that had that thing growing on him and he tore it off because the maggots finally got inside of his body. And he was old man. I called him old man. And then he, there's a one that looks just like him in, in that area. And I call him Junior because I think it was his son or nephew or something down the line. There's a black one over here. I call him Barney. <laughs> He's a character. I got a couple over there that they need an eye sewed shut because one little guy, nicest thing you've ever seen, he, he can't shut his eye because he had that, that fester in it and now it's just like a dead eye, but he can't shut his eye. So the flies land on him and stuff when he's sleeping. And he's going to get maggots going to his brain next, you know, and that's, that's terrible. I can't even imagine 
I can't imagine an old man what he went through. But just things like that, and they won't help. Well, animals like that. I come three times a day. I get here at daybreak, and I put fresh water everywhere. I got, you'll see the places. I got quite a few places. That, and uh, the ones that don't go to the feeders, I put down food for them. This way I I'd be able to keep my count. I know how many's there, and I can look at their health, which ones are injured, you know, and stuff like that. I buy antibiotics from a place back east, and I mix it with the food. And, you know, when they get crusty eyes and they're stuck shut, I have to rescue them and get them and uh, get the medicine to them, and, or they go blind. Like I said, they had a home at one time, and it was loved at one time, and it just left, and they've just been trying to survive ever since. Yeah, well, I've lived here most of my life. My grandparents lived at the very end of this, over on Park Drive. They had a big gate right over here. And my grandmother was always chasing cats out of her garden because they were always pooping in her garden. She didn't like that. There's always been a cat problem here. And uh, like I say, I've tried to get city help and do something, you know, or give me a trailer so I can start rehabbing them. I've, I've got about 52 of them out of here in the two years that I've, that going on two years that I've done this, you know. I could probably get seven, six, seven cats' homes every month if we could do that. You figure that out in 10 months, that'd be all the cats, <laughs> you know. But, and I think we need a cat rescue here, this whole valley. You know, we have a problem down at Grand Oasis, and that's right next to Matheson Bird Conservatory thing. And you wouldn't believe what cats do to the environment. They really do some damage. There are some ferals, but like I say, you'll know a feral, you might as well go try to catch a bobcat. Because they're pretty, they're pretty wild, but most of these are friendly. They'll, they'll come to you. Where we're gonna go now is I gotta pick up, there's a feeder on the other side of that. And then I'll go racing around there and I gotta throw some water down. Clean water and clean food means to help the cat, you know. You know, they're, they're a little scared of people, but they got to know me. A lot of people say, oh, you're the caretaker, though. They'll come to you. Well, of course. Every day, not missing, never miss a day. Gets me off my couch. <laughs> I just feel those little guys depend on me now, you know, kind of. I got hurt in the oil field that I've been kind of, I've been on a disability, you know, for quite a long time. And there's some days that it's a little rough <laughs> doing this, because I have a lot of metal parts in me. But I get going, I just, they're the ones that inspire me, the cats do, to get up and get going, and throw one leg in front of the other. And once I do that, I, I feel a little bit better. At one point in time, I didn't like who I was, you know. And when I got hurt, I really got really depressed. 
going into alcohol and drugs and thought that was the answer. And then I, I figured it, figured that out. It wasn't. <laughs> uh, cleaned up and haven't drank for probably about 20 years. And don't do any drugs. And it just changed my whole life. And like I say, my heart changed and everything changed. You know, and it wasn't no easy road. Like I've been working on this for 20 years, <laughs> and I'm still working on it. You just don't change overnight when you have a lifetime of habits and attitudes. Chewy has a good deal on uh, the canned food. You get 40 cans for 25 bucks. And I go through seven of those, six, seven of those a month. I only get $20,000 a year to live on. I've cut back on smoking, which is good, just so I can buy cat food. They say, no, you're feeding skunks and raccoons. And, no, I'm not. I pick my food up every night, you know, because mm -hmm. I know better than that. <laughs> <laughs> People have been trying to trap them and, you know, get them sterilized and released. But, you know, if you just leave one or two, it's, it just kind of, starts all over again and it's just the way it all started you know and they have a rough time trying to survive especially the older ones you know i figured i'd help their situation out a little bit if i can give them a little bit of comfort little so they're not i can't see stand seeing anything starve though you know that's that's just cruel you know as I get, get older, I sympathize with everything <laughs> a little bit better, you know. I'm, I got a real tender heart, you know. I watch, I watch TV sometimes, and I'm so happy for somebody on TV, I, I'm in tears, you know. And that's never happened to me before. And that's just being happy for somebody, you know. But growing up here, I used to be quite the hoodlum and stuff. But, uh, and it took me, what, uh, 45 years to grow up, I think they say. <laughs> And I got a big tender heart now compared to what I used to. It's just, I'm totally different. It's really not. I just uh, seen a need. I just couldn't ignore it. I love animals, and I just can't see them suffering, you know. I noticed that when I put stuff where the kittens are, they'll come out and eat, and the big cat will come up, and they'll just look at them and turn away without trying to bully that food from them. They, they watch out for their little ones. Those little prides, I call them. If they got to know you, you'd see how loving they really are. And that's all they've ever wanted, probably is just another forever home and someone to love them and them love them, you know, vice versa.
unconditional. You know, and they'll be there for you. They're just one of God's creatures that they're here trying to survive like we are. Travis Garcia, also known as Cat Daddy. With his white van full of cat supplies, he looks out for the community cats living behind the hospital and in and around the Walnut Lane trailer park. The local Humane Society does have volunteers who trap and neuter these animals. Travis has trapped them for sterilization as well. There are more being born there though. Many of the kittens have feline panleukopenia, which is a contagious virus, so the animal shelter can't take them or they'll infect other cats. Travis's goal is to figure out a way to safely quarantine and vaccinate the cats from this colony so they can eventually be adopted out. This was an audio portrait, a non-narrated profile of people and places in the Moab Valley that appears every so often in the newscast. If you think there's someone or somewhere we should profile, please reach out to news at kzmu.org. Now we head to the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Our community experienced a big monsoonal storm last week. Doug McMurdo with the Times Independent has details from their coverage. I know every year it seems like we have a, an historic flood, but this year, uh, this, the storm that we had on August 11th, which came right on the hills of the storm the day before, Uh, dumped an inch of rain on Moab and up in the mountains. And what made it so bad this year is um, not only is that an uh, an incredible amount of rainfall, but the burn scars Mm. from the Pat Creek fire last year in in both the Pat Creek and Mill Creek watersheds. Mm -hmm. All that debris came flowing down both creeks. Um, the, the, the day after Friday, uh, a week ago Friday, today was just, uh, uh, it was amazing. You know, all the water was gone, but I got muddy as heck just walking yeah. around the parkway getting photographs. August 11th, now we're talking about the day that, you know, Main Street flooded. It did. Yeah. And we can go into that. Yeah. Um, the the um, Main Street did flood, and so did Center Street and a few others, and some homes got uh, got flooded and some flood water damage. But that water from the streets, it seemed to uh, shed pretty quickly. Mm. And although Highway 191 widening work that was done for over yeah. a year, there was also a lot of storm drain work that, mm-hmm. that went into that. And uh, the city contributed quite a bit of money to make that happen. According to Chuck Williams, city engineer, that storm drain system, all those improvements did exactly what it was supposed to oh, do. good. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that, that was a really, that was the one, the one rose that came out of all these right. thorns. 
So both Pat Creek and Mill Creek um, were overrun. There was some damage, but most of it was just mud and debris. I think a, a guardrail got washed out at 100 West mm-hmm. on Mill Creek. But by and large, I think we, uh, we weathered the storm uh, better than um, Highway 211 did. We have this uh, remarkably dramatic photo uh, from the Bureau of Land Management where Highway 211, where it uh, intersects at 191, uh, just washed out, and um, a good half of one lane is just basically gone, as you can see in the photo. It looks like it just goes on forever. Yeah, I'm seeing, you know, those white lines um, that mark, you know, the median or the center line of a roadway just falling into the ditch. And this is the main access road to Bears Ears, Mm. popular climbing areas in Mm -hmm. Indian Creek, um, a whole lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And we, in our our information on the photo, we do provide alternate route to get to those uh, those sites. So there is an alternate route that's currently set up. Yeah, there is. It'll take some more driving, but you can still get there. Now, this photo that's uh, that's on the front page of the Times Independent, this to me means there's going to be a lot of work ahead. Yeah, I felt so silly. You know how, how you never make assumptions. Sure. I, I actually called Rachel Wooten at the BLM okay. and said, uh, hey, Rachel, what are the chances that Highway 211 has reopened? And she just paused like, who am I talking to? <laughs> it's going to be closed for the foreseeable future. So <laughs> For some time. Okay. Thank you so much for this coverage, Doug. And do you want to take us to, to more road stuff? Yes. Um, for those of you who travel 191 north and south of um, Moab, UDOT's got projects going, and the monsoons, uh, most of that work has been going on at night, and the monsoons have uh, created a problem, and Mm. they're going to go to primarily daytime uh, hours, which means more lane restrictions and Mm. more more safety precautions and things of that nature. So This is north on highway. Yeah, near arches. Mm -hmm. It's going to be daytime work, so just be be careful driving driving by arches. Now, um, there's another story in the Times Independent. I'm hoping you can highlight this again. Takes us to the court. Yes. Judge Torgerson has uh, issued a ruling suppressing evidence in a drug case that occurred October 24th. Okay. And uh, two officers responded to a call of uh, loud music playing at 725 in the morning. They went to the uh, residence in the area of 500 West and 400 North, and there was a man who was sleeping inside a Cadillac Escalade, um, and the music was very, very loud. Okay. Um, they couldn't rouse him. They couldn't get him to mm. wake up. Um, one of the officers opened his door and shook him awake, and, mm. and he kind of came up. But according to uh, court documents, he n- never really seemed like he knew where he was mm. or what was going mm. on. Uh, and he, he did not speak English. So what he has found is that this man's uh, Fourth Amendment rights were violated when an officer who was being trained by a sergeant the sergeant was uh, in his patrol car running the guy's license driver's license and he comes back out and she's handcuffing him and says um, he he consented to a search and I found cocaine in his pocket and um, so from there he got an arrest but she never the judge found that she never really got that consent Uh, it was more than just a language barrier and so searching him and finding drugs gave them probable cause to do a warrantless search on his vehicle where they found 18 grams of meth, a sellable amount. All of that evidence was thrown out because Mm. she never obtained his uh, consent. The judge, in a really strongly worded opinion, 
basically, um, he never used the word perjury. He never used the word lie, but he certainly used words like misrepresented and implausible mm. and changing your story. And, uh, you know, she just um, she testified under oath back in January, and uh, the judge didn't think that she was being honest. So there were issues related to that question of did this officer get consent? Right. And there was another issue that something that she testified to was controverted by uh, the sergeant's body cam footage. So she was caught in another misrepresentation. So Judge Torgerson, you know, this is not the first time, as you've said on this program and as you've reported in the Times Independent, where he has been very clear about um, officers potentially compromising cases. Do you see that as a pattern with Judge Torgerson, where he is zero tolerance on this stuff? Um, he, he was a defense attorney, so he has a, a different judicial philosophy, I imagine, mm-hmm. than a lot of other judges do. But he's very fair, and um, when he needs to uh, uh, throw the book, so to speak, at someone, he winds up and he throws it hard. It's 90 miles an hour, and it's a fastball. Um, but he's, he's also lenient uh, when, uh, when mercy is, was, is warranted. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does not um, suffer fools gladly. I think what he's looking for is making sure that police follow the rules. Everybody says they love the Constitution. Well, it's more than just about guns and um, freedom of speech. It's Mm -hmm. it's about a whole lot of other things. And one of them is um, you're protected against unreasonable search and seizures. Is there anything to say about the Moab City Police Department? Because this is not the first time they've dealt with um, issues with their officers. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you bring this up because longtime residents know better than I that there's a, a pretty shaky history with the Moab PD. It's been a problem. I think a lot of it has to do with training. I think a lot of it has to do with leadership. And speaking of letter, leadership, I think that um, the new chief that came on in May, Jared Garcia, I think that he's going to really be an effective police chief. And I think mm-hmm. that he's going to get these uh, men and women the training that they need and uh, the motivation that they need to do their jobs well. Being a police officer uh, in any any kind of law enforcement capacity, it's a dangerous job. It's Mm -hmm. often a thankless job. Um, You have to deal with people like me who write stories and put them on the front page. and mm-hmm. you're, under, you're under a lot of stress, and it's because you're held to a higher standard. We've had this conversation mm-hmm. before, and police should be held to a higher standard. They have a gun and a badge and the right to detain us and deprive mm-hmm. us of our liberty. They should, they should behave accordingly. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, have, I have no personal angst against the police department. I think that it's in much better hands now than it was a few months ago, and I'll leave it at that. Doug McMurdo, editor at The Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. The Bureau of Land Management is planning to fill in 74 historic uranium mines in our area. Allison Harford with the Moab Sun News has more from their coverage. They're all in San Juan County, and they're kind of near the headwaters of Cane Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have three different mining areas that they'll be in. Some of those like do go into Grand County, but the mines themselves are located in San Juan County. And so Utah, as a state, we have between 8,000 and 11,000 abandoned mines. Wow. So these things are everywhere. What about the decision to close these ones in particular? So I talked to a BLM geologist, Jennifer Whittington, and she said that these were picked specifically because of their proximity to high visitation areas. Um, So people are 
you know, coming across these mines a lot more. And so the BLM is closing them because mine shafts are actually quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, people can fall down them, first of all. And then they also have unstable structures. Sometimes they have explosives and poor ventilation. There's radioactivity and hazardous waste. Um, and then also sometimes there's wildlife. So Jennifer said that bats make mm-hmm. a home in the mines a lot, and also they've come across mountain lions and even bears living in the mines. Really? Yeah. Okay. Did they get extra funding to do this? So it's in partnership with the Utah Division of Oil, Gas, and Mining, um, which has this abandoned mine reclamation program um, that they've been running for a couple years. And so this year they're doing 74 mines in this area, and then next year they're looking at another 92 to close. You know, what's the process? Of closing the mind. So first, um, they send in a team of people donned in scuba gear oh, because wow. um, of all the toxic gas and waste. Mm. Wow. And then um, that team will analyze kind of the opening of the mine. So if it's not unstable, they have a lot more options. But if it is a really unstable opening, then they'll just fill it all in with dirt. But if it's stable, then they'll kind of go through another process. So if animals are living in the mine, um, they'll try to install like some sort of grate so that animals can still go in and out and be in their home. If there are historic features of the shaft, like inscriptions or old mining gear, um, the BLM will try to install a stone wall behind those features so that the shaft itself is closed, but the features are still visible. Mm-hmm. And they'll also do the stone wall or the grate if the mine has become part of the area's ecology. Like sometimes shafts will carry water. Mm. Um, And the team will also look for fossils. And if they find any, they'll notify paleontologists. The project is expected to take all fall. um, And Whittington said hopefully they'll be done by December. Fascinating, of course. Uh, More in the MOVs and news this week. Mm. Um, Where else do you want to take us, Allie? So results from the annual Utah State University Wellbeing Survey Project came out recently. These results didn't really paint a new picture of Moab, but they echo what Moabites have been saying for a long time and also what the Moab Tomorrow Together project, which is a future visioning project run by the city, um, they echo what that project found during its own community survey Mm -hmm. in May. And so this USU well-being survey had 208 viable responses and Moab has participated in the project since 2020. Mm -hmm. And this year, respondents said that Population growth and the pace of economic development in Moab were too fast, Um, and the top concerns for the future of Moab are affordable housing, water supply, access to public land, opportunities for youth, and access to quality food, which actually was a new kind of data point. And the survey also found that overall personal well-being and community well-being in Moab declined from last year, which also had declined from 2020, and Moab reported the lowest well-being in both of those areas of the total 33 cities that participated in the survey. But you did say that like these concerns or whatever was brought up during the well-being study was very Mm -hmm. much in line with what the city is finding during their visioning process. Right. Yeah. And it's very much in line with what the city and county are trying to um, work on when they're making new policies. Like Mm -hmm. we're always seeing affordable housing policies and water policies come through our local government. And so another important aspect of this survey was that, um, you know, it's not all bad. Respondents were also asked about what they love most about Moab, and they said 
the sense of community um, surrounding nature and trails and access to public lands. And then the survey splits apart well-being domains. And so for MOAB respondents, the highest rated ones were connection with nature and physical health, followed by safety and security, mental health, and leisure time. So you know, when you're analyzing this survey, it's like people really love living here. It's just that locals are really worried about what Moab could become. And Mm -hmm. they're kind of plagued by these worries so much Mm -hmm. so that they feel that their personal well-being is declining. Wow. And it sounds like we kind of rated our, or whoever took the survey rated their personal well-being the lowest in the state. Yes. Um, Do we have demographics of those who took the survey? Yeah. So there were demographics. Um, Something that was really interesting was that the survey split apart like who were more likely to rank the community well-being as being higher and Mm. those were usually people who were age 60 and over had a college degree Um, those who earned an income over 150,000 were a latter-day saint Mm. and were a resident of five years or less how does USU use this research so the ultimate goal is to see um, whether or not communities have been declining since COVID. So this is kind of a recent thing. Um, But now it's turned into just an analysis of personal and community well-being and like which things um, are taking an impact on that. Okay. And there's more in the most than news. There's one more piece I'm hoping you can highlight. It's about an upcoming event. One of Moab's most iconic yearly events is back. It's the Moab Music Festival, which is now in its 30th year. So the festival this year will have 18 concerts um, and it'll run from August 22nd to September 16th. Any artists to highlight? Anything to look forward to when it comes to this classical music festival? There's a really wide mix of music and musicians this year. I talked to Michael Barrett, who's the festival's music director and co-founder, and he said this year there will be more contemporary music, um, and the festival will feature 12 living composers, but there will also be nods to festival's past. So favorites like Time for Three and Bela Fleck will be returning with Mm -hmm. their own concerts. Um, Both of those artists do bluegrass and the festival's centerpiece is on september 3rd and it's a showcase of contemporary native american composers titled sunrise on turtle island remind us the dates again the festival runs from august 22nd to september 16th the two weekends that bookend it will be the classic colorado river concerts where um, participants do like a three-day rafting trip complete with concerts while they're camping and on the water. Um, And then in between there will be these centerpiece concerts like Sunrise on Turtle Island. There will also be two other themed concerts called Extreme Weather, which explores how composers have depicted weather in their work. Mm. And also Copland in the American West, which explores the Moab area's history as a setting for Western movies. Mm. And then there will be the Grotto and Music Hike concerts, um, in which attendees boat or hike to the concert location. And this year, there's another secret location outdoor concert called Music in the Meadow. All right. They've kind of gone all out because this is their 30th anniversary. Right. Yeah. So I also talked to Leslie Tompkins, who is the artistic director and other co-founder, and she said she really wanted this year to feel like a thank you to the Moab community. Mm. Um, So there will also be a free community concert, which will take place on September 5th at Old City Park. Um, This is completely free, and it's a 
sampling of all the other concerts played during the festival. And then the festival organizers are also planning two free pop-up concerts that are kind of secretive. (laughs) So the program time and location will be announced a few days before or the day of on the Moab Music Festival's social media pages. Allison Harford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. And that's the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest coverage of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes of today's news on our website and podcast. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.